Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. I'm Jan Dawson. My co-host is Aaron Miller. We'll do our usual format here. We'll have a news roundup in which we'll cover early iPhone SE sales and indicators of, of what those might be. We'll talk about Samsung's preliminary Q1 financials, and we'll talk about the Twitter NFL rights deal that was announced this week. Uh, then our question of the week will be, what is it like to use Apple News as a publisher? And Beyond Devices blog and podcast have been published to Apple News for the last couple of weeks now. Uh, I've been spending a lot of time getting kind of down down deep in the weeds uh, in terms of the process of publishing to Apple News. Learned a lot during that period. And so we'll be kind of talking through that process and providing hopefully some insights into how that all works and kind of what the state of Apple News is in regard to that side of it. And then our third topic will be uh, Tesla's unveiling of the uh, Model 3 this week or this uh, past week, and uh, kind of some of the things that we found interesting about that. Uh, we'll talk about, um, you know, to what extent Tesla is a car company versus a tech company. We'll talk about um, some of the changes in design that are happening in cars being driven by electrification and other things and, and various other topics related to that. And then we'll wrap up, as usual, with our weekly pick in which uh, Aaron will have a recommendation for our listeners. So let's kick off with that news roundup. And these iPhone SE sales, there were a couple of um, sort of contradictory reports that came out this week. On the one hand, um, some of the uh, financial analyst firms came out and said they didn't think the sales had been that strong. It was a company called Localytics that does online analytics. And based on the fact that iPhone SE sales barely seemed to show up in the analytics, they, they figured they were fairly low sales. Uh, on the other hand, um, some of the app, Apple tech blogs this week have noticed that uh, sales um, seem to be at least reasonably strong because the ship time for iPhone, most of the iPhone SE models is now uh, a couple of weeks out, which suggests some constraint in uh, supply meeting demand. So interesting set of reports there. Aaron, what was your take on all of this? Well, you know, I, it's typical of this sort of a situation. Every time an Apple product gets supply constrained, you never really know like what the culprit is if it's if it's high demand or if it's or if it's apple being conservative in its in its sales estimates i my inkling is that apple was probably conservative in the se uh, production um only because this is kind of an experimental phone for them in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. um that said, I, I do think they're going to see a lot of great, a lot of sales for this. We won't know anything about it, obviously, this time around when they're reporting financials in a couple of weeks. But, um, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if it creates some sort of upside surprise, you know, when they report in the middle of the summer. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I've I felt like the SC should lead to a decent number of new sales. There are a lot of people who haven't bought a four-inch phone for a couple of years, were waiting for something like this, and just holding on to the device they have. So. I continue to feel that there's going to be a lot of pent-up demand. I was actually surprised that there were lines in stores for the iPhone SE because almost by definition it's a phone for people who don't have to have the latest and greatest, who are willing to wait a while. So, um, you know, it probably will be something of a slow burn as well. This was never going to be the kind of blowout opening weekend sales that we see for the new flagships in the fall. So, you know, a lot of the reporting that I've seen has kind of treated it as if it was a big launch like that, and it it never was that and wasn't going to be that. And so... um, I, I don't think the indicators that we have necessarily give us much of a ballpark figure for how many they actually sold over the first weekend. But again, that's not really the point. The point is, what does it do for them over the entirety of the second quarter and the early part of the third quarter when iPhone sales tend to slip quite a bit um, in anticipation of new models being released in the fall? That's really one of the main purposes of this device. And so I'm very curious to see what it can add 
especially in the second calendar quarter um, to sales. But we won't know that for a while yet. And there'll be some commentary, I expect, on the earnings call in a couple of weeks' time. But beyond that, I think we'll have to wait probably another three months to really have a sense of how it's shifted iPhone sales during that period. So Samsung does this interesting thing where it releases preliminary uh, financial numbers. And really, it's just a headline revenue uh, number and operating profit number for the entire Samsung Electronics business. And it does that shortly after the quarter ends. And then, like most companies, then re reports full financial results a few weeks later. Um, they've just released that in the last 24 hours or so as we're recording this. And um, the numbers are fairly positive, And a big driver of that is that they released the Ga Galaxy S7 phones about a month earlier this year than they did last year, which meant that they fell into March rather than April. Um, so that gave them a boost in this quarter. But there's been commentary throughout the press suggesting that even if you kind of shift everything by a month, that the sales have been quite a bit stronger this year than last year as well. So good news there for Samsung. Um, various theories about what might be behind that. What, what did you read about that, Aaron? Well, Ben Baharan, this, I think it was yesterday, tweeted that he, he thinks it's just um, the upgrade cycle that Samsung, I, Samsung phone owners have sort of settled into, which is they tend to upgrade every two years and that this is essentially what's happening now. It, it feels right to me only because there wasn't any, it didn't seem like there was any sort of market shift that would have caused a, a, a sudden change in Samsung's fortunes. Um, you know, there, there, it didn't seem like there was any sort of structural change that would have all of a sudden, and the phones weren't exactly, you know, new or cutting edge in any super remarkable ways. I mean, they're, they're well-made phones, but, uh, but, but it's not like there's some new feature that had never been out on the market before that everybody was clamoring after. And so the idea that this is just kind of an upgrade cycle, upgrade cycle coming due feels right to me. Right. Yeah, I, that, I certainly think that's part of it. I think last year the sales were depressed by the fact that the iPhone 6 line had launched just a few months earlier, and that, that drove a lot more switching from Android to iPhone than previous iPhones had. And so that was kind of a, an unusual event that I think depressed Android sales for every vendor over the, the six to nine months following the launch of the iPhone 6. So I think that was a big part of why they were depressed last year on top of all the other sort of macro stuff that we've talked about before in relation to Samsung. You know, this year's phones are really solid, but to your point, largely follow the sort of design conventions and so on from last year. Uh, last year, there were a couple of things that people didn't like, like they, they, they uh, didn't have removable storage and a few other things like that that people weren't happy about. But, you know, there was a sense that people just said, "Yeah, this is okay, but I'm not sure I need to upgrade this year. And now, you know, two years or even three years in some cases after people last upgraded, they're finally seeing, you know, this is worth upgrading for. And I've seen a fair number of the new phones out and about even, um, which, you know, you don't always see in the same way with Samsung phones immediately in the same way that you do with iPhones, but they really do seem to be selling pretty well. We obviously have to put that in context. I think they've sold maybe 9 million of them or something over the last month or so, you know, in comparison to iPhone models, that's, that's still not amazing. Um, but, you know, decent sales for Samsung. So signs that, you know, this year may be slightly better for Samsung. You know, it's the, the revenue number they posted was only slightly up on last year and given the new phones did launch earlier. It's not that impressive from a financial performance perspective. And it may just shift everything earlier in the year. We'll have to see that over the next couple of quarters. But certainly signs that continued signs, and we've talked about this a bit before, that things are at least stabilizing at Samsung. They're certainly not going to go back to the heights that they were at a couple of years ago. But you know, they do seem to have stabilized their business, which was kind of job one for them to do at the moment, I think. 
Well, and I think that's where this news is good news. I mean, even I mean, Samsung won't return to the dominance it had before among the Android handset makers, but I think it will. Um, but but this feels like an indicator that having a great flagship phone um, is a sufficient defense against the the Chinese competition, right, that's been coming at them from the low end. I mean, because Samsung had so many sales on the low end that have been eaten away by cheaper competition. And this seems to say that, you know, Samsung can stake a claim in in having a premium phone and protect its business from being entirely eaten away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a good sign for them for sure. Um, our third news roundup topic is this um, NFL rights deal, um, which in the end went to Twitter. This is specifically the digital rights. Um, the broadcast rights were auctioned off previously and were won by a combination of a couple of the major broadcast networks. These were the digital rights, which the first time that the NFL has split these rights in this way, usually it's been a package where everything has gone in together. And specifically, this is for, um, I think, 10 Thursday night games. So over the last several years, the NFL's kind of packaged up its rights into different days of the week, essentially. You have Sunday night football, Monday night football. This is the Thursday night package. And it's, as I say, 10 games that these companies have bid for. Uh, Amazon was considered to be a strong bidder. Facebook was said to be very interested early on. Uh, about a week ago, we heard that Facebook probably wasn't going to win the rights. They, they weren't interested, ironically, because they didn't want to show advertising against it. Um, but uh, the surprise was that Twitter ended up winning those rights this week. And as the news broke um, early, I think it was Monday morning, uh, this week there was a whole set of, or maybe it was Tuesday, there was a whole set of um, revelations that kind of came out during the course of the day about the specifics, which really changed the nature of the story. And I, I wrote a couple of pieces for the Beyond Devices blog, the first of which was called Twitter's NFL Gamble, and the second of which was called the NFL's Twitter Gamble, because the, the uh, thrust of the news really changed quite a bit during the course of the day. And the key piece of information was that Twitter is paying $10 million or less for these rights, which is an amazingly low number given that you know, similar rights have sold for hundreds of millions in the past. Um, and a big reason for that is that this is basically just going to be a rebroadcast of the broadcaster's stream with ads and all. So it would be very little opportunity for Twitter to insert additional advertising and to make money from that. And because the games are going to be available through, uh, I think, it's CBS and NBC anyway, um, you know, there's relatively little value from, from Twitter broadcasting it in addition. There are going to be plenty of other ways to watch this, so there's no exclusivity. Um, and so what originally looked like a big gamble by Twitter to spend tons and tons of money buying these really uh, important rights, but you know, in an area they've never done it before, now looks much more like a gamble on the NFL's part that the digital rights basically aren't worth much um, and that you can give them to a company like Twitter that has really no experience in broadcasting high-quality video um, and just basically for the audience and for the reach, but while preserving basically the relationship with the traditional broadcasters rather than doing something a bit more daring. So. It was a, a gamble of sorts. In other, in other ways, you could see it as playing very safe. But it was, it was an interesting thing to watch, and, and how the story kind of unfolded was almost as interesting as the news itself. Well, there's so much in this um, that shows the NFL still hasn't really figured out what to do with these Thursday night games that have, to be honest, been an experiment from the start. I mean, they have their, they have their genesis in the NFL network, which in and of itself is this kind of huge gamble by the NFL that it could, you know, produce year round 24 hour content that would drive enough people to watch this 
channel. And so the idea and, and the whole reason for these Thursday night games was to get the cable companies to include the NFL network in their channel lineups. And, you know, cause if you can offend at least, you know, if you can offend the sports fans of every single NFL team, at least once during the year to get them angry against our cable company, the idea is that they would sign up. Uh, I think the, the Thursday night games have been, have been interesting because it's clear that the NFL still doesn't really know how to do this. I mean, they're, you know, the Sunday all day and then Monday night games are really deeply entrenched in, in, uh, in expectations. Like everybody just knows that's when the NFL plays right. and these Thursday night games always feel out of sync. Um, and so this is a reflection of something on the NFL side that I think is much deeper than necessarily on, you know, streamability of of live sports and you know and twitter's you know sort of place in 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 this future market i i think a lot of this just has to do with the nfl not really knowing what to do with this thursday night games yet Mm -hmm. yeah it definitely is an experiment you know in in that sense i think it's positive that they're experimenting with different things I, i thought it was a good idea to split these rights because it meant that you didn't have to have the situation where you know, an Apple or an Amazon or a Google or someone was having to buy the whole package of rights in an area you know, where they had no experience, essentially, that they could kind of bite off a smaller chunk. But in the end, it's been such a minor thing and a minor revenue source for the NFL now with these digital rights being separate. And, and it feels very much like a reinforcement of the traditional model with the broadcasters leading the way rather than something more disruptive, which could have been really interesting. So kudos to the NFL for uh, experimenting, but they've been very cautious, I guess, in their experimentation. Well, and the biggest problem here is that uh, producing a, a live NFL broadcast is is an unbelievably expensive and complicated thing that requires a great deal of expertise. And and that's why it makes sense that the broadcasters are holding on to this because they already have the announcers, the cameramen, right? The Essentially all the expertise already in place and they're good at this and they've been doing it for decades. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, let's move on to our question of the week. And in case you're a new listener and you haven't heard this before, um, our question of the week is uh, something that we do pretty much every week where one of us takes the time to prepare some research on a topic and then the other one kind of pitches them questions and, and we kind of talk through something and it's intended to be somewhat explanatory, intended to allow us to kind of dive deeper on a topic than we might otherwise be able to do just speaking off the tops of our heads. And so, as I mentioned at the beginning, we're going to be talking about Apple News and specifically what it's like to use Apple News as a publisher. And again, we were approved to start publishing Beyond Devices blog posts and podcasts to uh, Apple News a couple of weeks ago. And so I've been kind of diving deep into the various tools available to publishers. Um, we're obviously a very small publisher. We're not you know, BuzzFeed or the New York Times or anything like that. Um, so our experience is very different, and that's something that we'll talk about. But um, really, we just wanted to give some insight from based on that experience of you know, what it's like, and, and specifically to talk a little bit about how this needs to evolve for it to be better, especially for some of these smaller and medium-sized publishers. So Aaron, pitch away with the questions. So I, I think the first question that helps us establish some context is why Apple is doing this news thing at all. I mean, how, give us the context here to understand Apple's interest in, new, in doing their own news thing versus just handing it off to other people. Yeah, I think the context here is that news is one of a number of content categories that's being increasingly baked into platforms, ecosystems, whatever word you want to use, uh, that are being built on top of operating systems like iOS. Um, And so you have two kinds of companies. You've got specialized 
publishing platforms, and I'm thinking of Medium as probably the biggest current example of that. Uh, and then you've got uh, companies that are sort of broad purpose platforms like Google or Facebook that are increasingly building news and proprietary formats for news deeper and deeper into their platforms in, in ways that they're very much embedded and that they are kind of increasingly unique to those platforms and that there are uh, formats that are not available outside of, say, Google search or uh, Facebook, uh, for example. And so there is this real push to create these proprietary formats around news specifically. We've obviously seen the attempts to bake music more deeply into some of these ecosystems and platforms as well, and, and that's why Apple launched Apple Music, uh, both of that and a response to the, the shift to subscription music services. But their investment in Apple Music, and I think their investment in Apple News too, is I think a recognition of the fact that news is being more and more baked into other platforms in a way that will abstract them more and more from the operating system layer and basically means that there's nothing unique about what Apple does in this area and so it would be easier and easier for people to switch and still get all the content and the experiences that they like because they're tied to say Facebook or Google or Medium or whatever rather than to the operating system in the way that say iTunes was with music in the past and so it's a sort of strategic shift from Apple to get back into the business of content and especially in music and news I think we may well see similar things around video as well. So Apple News is relatively young but uh, it hasn't all been the same since it was first launched last year so can you talk us through the unfolding of Apple News from the time it launched to now? Yeah, so Apple News was an iOS 9 change. Um, there was obviously some sort of preview uh, of it for people who were on the betas in the last little while before the public release, but really most people would have experienced it first with upgrading to the public version of iOS 9. Um, but it, it, when it first launched, it was mostly with a few specific publishers. Um, it, that, especially before it formally launched to the public, it was explicitly sort of invite-only and then after that, it opened up a bit more, and you could submit an RSS feed um, and uh, be approved if you were lucky. Um, and then just in the last few weeks, Apple opened it up even more and basically said the Apple News format specifically is open to everyone. Um, and so there's been this progressive kind of opening of things. In reality, um, throughout all of these phases, there's still been an approval process. And so in the early stages, you could submit an RSS feed and say, I would like to be on Apple News, but you might wait weeks and then you might just be rejected. And the reason for being rejected would, would not be very helpful in helping you figure out you know, how you might get around that. Um, and so it was quite a frustrating process. Uh, with the opening up of Apple News format to everyone, you can now basically create a channel um, based on the Apple News format that's now opened up to everyone. Uh, and yet you still then have to submit a few sort of test pieces and then wait for approval again. And that's the stage that we were stuck at for about 10 days, I think, after that news was announced, um, where we just, you were just waiting and you have no sense of how long it's going to take or you know, what the holdup might be or whatever. I happened to tweet about it and then the same day we got approved. And so I'm thinking perhaps a friendly uh, face at Apple maybe pushed things along for us. And if so, we're grateful for that. But... Um, you know, it was another sign of the fact that even though things are technically quote-unquote open now, there is still an approval process involved. Um, you can't just push whatever you want to Apple News. They still want to see some test content before they'll approve you to publish to this Apple News format. And, um, but thankfully, we're in that now. And so for the last couple of weeks, you know, we and many others have been starting to publish. I'm seeing more and more publications show up there now, um, you know, including the 
the uh, Daily Universe, which is the uh, college newspaper of, of Brigham Young University where Aaron teaches. They, they've started publishing to Apple News recently. So we've seen lots of sort of smaller, mid-sized publishers show up there. I've even seen a couple of new publications created explicitly to take advantage of Apple News. So it seems like the, the real heart of this issue is how easy it is to publish to Apple News. I mean, if you're a publisher, it, this needs to be something that doesn't require a whole lot of extra work. And and so talk us through what are the ways that you publish and how easy are each of the ways? What are the benefits and drawbacks of the ways to publish to Apple News? Right. And so there are, there are four main ways at this point to get content into Apple News. And that's both a good thing and a bad thing. And each of them does have pros and cons. And so I'll talk through each of them briefly. Um, the first one is that you that Apple News has APIs that you can tap into if you know how to do that kind of thing, and so you can publish to Apple News directly in that way. The second option is to work with this new Apple News publisher web app, which is sort of a WYSIWYG editor for creating content for Apple News. Uh, the third way is to use a plugin for a content management system, and the two that Apple advertises at this point are for WordPress and Drupal. And then the fourth way is basically just to submit an RSS feed, uh, which Apple News then pulls in and publishes. Um, that's the only one of the four that doesn't use the Apple News format, um, which is this proprietary format that they have. That one basically just pulls in raw content with no formatting, uh, much like your RSS reader might do. And so you end up with a very sort of plain vanilla um, sort of format there rather than the more sort of proprietary, slightly flashier looking Apple News format. So those are the four. Um, the f uh, so let's go through those in a bit more depth. So the first one is publishing directly through the APIs. That's obviously not something that's going to be for every small and medium-sized publisher because you understand you have to understand coding and so on. You have to be able to build that um, probably into your CMS as a sort of plug-in or an extension of your CMS so that you can then push things from your CMS into Apple News. Um, given that the plugins that are available for Apple News for, for other CMSs like WordPress and WordPress and Drupal have been open sourced. You can go and download the source code from GitHub and at least see how they did it. Uh, but again, you need a fair amount of familiarity with how to do that stuff in the first place to even contemplate trying to work directly with the APIs. So that's likely the way that a lot of the biggest publishers are working with Apple News is feeding stuff, um, you know, using their in-house development or even third-party development to create proprietary sort of extensions and plugins to their content management systems. Uh, but it's not really a great option for everybody else because you have to know how to code and, and that would be an expensive thing for a lot of smaller and mid-sized publishers to do. So certainly not an option for us. I've dabbled with HTML and CSS in the past. I've, I, um, you know, I, we run several websites off WordPress, which I manage. And, and so I'm, I'm somewhat comfortable with PHP, but I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to go deep enough to work with the APIs directly. So that wasn't really an option for us and and that will be the case for many small and medium-sized publishers unless they happen to have a background in that kind of thing. So that's the biggest drawback there is that's probably the most flexible uh, and most powerful way that you can work with Apple News, but it's really not open to anybody who can't either have existing expertise or pay for external expertise to to help them to do that. So the second option then is this new Apple News Publisher web app. And if you've used any kind of WYSIWYG web editor, the basic concept would be familiar. You basically, it's, it's almost like a word processor. You have certain slots. There's a slot at the beginning for kind of a header image. There's a slot for a title and a subtitle and a byline. And then, you know, a big empty space where you um, slot in your, the main content of your post. And, you know, you've got options for images. You've got options for headers. You can, you know, bold and italic text and... Um, you can uh, do things like that. But 
it's really very limited. So you can't embed videos, for example. So if you wanted to include a YouTube video or something like that, or even an Instagram picture or any other embed, um, you know, in the case of our podcast, on the podcast website, we embed SoundCloud videos, um, you know, as SoundCloud audio, excuse me, the audio player from SoundCloud. You can't do that within this editor. Um, so there's limitations like that. There aren't even bullets. Um, so if you've looked at our podcast on Apple News, you'll see that where bullets would normally be on the website, there are little asterisks in the place of bullets. And so just really basic formatting stuff that's missing from that Apple News format. It's really quite basic. Um, you can't indent text. You can't do kind of the classic sort of blog quote where you indent and italicize text and have it in a different color. There are very basic sort of color schemes, but you can't specify a specific font. Um, you can't have several different levels of headers. You can't specify uh, colors beyond the, sort of the color schemes that Apple News offers there. So it's really quite basic as an editor. Um, and yet, and we'll come back to this, that's what I've been using for publishing most of our stuff. Uh, and I'll come back to why that is. Um, the third so option, sorry, yeah. Let me ask you a question yeah. about this thing. That also sounds tedious. I mean, if you have a, if you have a, a, a primary publishing platform that's not Apple News, then it sounds like there's a lot of copying and pasting involved. Yes, there is. And because, uh, and this is the fundamental issue with this Apple News publisher setup is because it's so basic in its formatting, there are a lot of things that you might have in your original that even if you copy and paste them across, it gets lost. So bullets get lost, as I mentioned, embeds get lost. So you're not just having to remove the embedded video or whatever you might have in there, an embedded tweet or whatever else it might be. You're having to tweak the text around it to reflect the fact that that embed is no longer there. You know, so now you're linking out to it probably instead. Um, and so yeah, there is a, it's it's a labor-intensive process. Um, and so you, you know, in some ways, this is the least attractive option. And yet, as I say, it's what I've been using for a lot of the stuff that we have published. And I'll I'll, I'll come back to kind of why that is later. Um, but yeah, it's it's as I say, each of these approaches has pros and cons, and, and that one has as many cons as any. Um, the third option, as I said, is using a plugin. So the, the Beyond Devices website, the blog, and the podcast um, both use WordPress, and so that is one of the plugins that's available. So you can go to the plugin store on WordPress and, and install that plugin, and um, and it works at a basic level. Um, it's not developed by Apple; it seems to have been developed by a third party. It's great that it exists at all, since Apple apparently didn't develop one. It's nice that somebody else took the time to do so, but it has shortcomings as well. And part of the shortcomings, I suspect, come from the fact that the Apple News format, even if you are working directly with the APIs, which is what this plugin kind of does in a very user-friendly way. Uh, still has these limitations, so there, you can't indent a quote. And so quotes in an article get translated into either just plain text or into what they call a pull quote, which is where you pull a quote out, make it really big as a kind of way to draw people's attention to it. It's not really the same thing as a as an indented quote on a traditional sort of blog post. And so there are various elements that just don't translate across, even if you're using these plugins. But again, things like embedded videos and other embeds don't translate across uh, through that plugin. Plugin has other funny little quirks, like it gives you the option of specifying a font size for each type of heading that you might have in a post, but it only has one line height for headings. So um, you have to decide, do you want all your headings to be have massive line height, even if the heading text is really small, or do you want to squash them all up together? Um, you know, you have weird trade-offs that you have to make. And so, again, it's somewhat inflexible. It's not really ideal. And um, the big problem with both this option and the RSS option is if you write a post in your CMS, whether it's WordPress or Drupal or whatever, and then publish it and then realize that something has gone wrong, there's no way to go in and edit the version on Apple News. You know, there's no kind of source code version, you know, like a 
you publish a WordPress post, you know, you can work in the WYSIWYG editor or you can hop across the HTML option and say, okay, I'm going to tweak the HTML and fix this thing that's broken here because for whatever reason I can't fix it in the WYSIWYG editor. With Apple News, there's no source code anywhere. You can't look at the source HTML or whatever uh, and start playing around with it and tweak and, and add things in or anything like that. Once it's published to Apple News, it's published, and the only way to tweak it is to go back to your original in your CMS and make a change there and then push that update to Apple News. And so that means that you now have to think very carefully when you hit publish from your CMS, you know, is this going to work well in Apple News? And when you're writing in your CMS, you have to be thinking, okay, if I include an embed, it's just not going to appear there. So do I need to reflect that in the wording around the embed so that people in Apple News won't wonder where it is? You know, do I have to include a link as well? And so it just forces you to really think through that. And, and it, if you want to publish this way, then you have to make sure that everything you publish to, say, WordPress, will be compatible once it's translated by the plugin to the Apple News format. And so it really limits what you can do in your in your CMS unless, and this is the reason why I'm using the Apple News Publisher, unless you just say, you know what, this is too hard. I'm just going to publish what I want to to the website, and then I'm going to redo it all in Apple News Publisher for the website. At least that way I know it will work there. It will also work on the WordPress site, and I don't have to worry about kind of hamstringing my WordPress publishing uh, to reflect the way it will look in the Apple News format. So that's the biggest reason why, um, you know, even though I'm, I have the plugin installed and everything, I could publish that way. For the most part, I've been using Apple News Publisher just to get that granular control over what it's going to look like um, within the limits of that platform. Um, the last two pieces that I published, the two Twitter pieces, Twitter NFL pieces this week, I actually did use the CMS plugin uh, for those two because they were purely text. Um, and it works fine for just text because there's no embeds, there's no indentation, there's nothing like that. Um, and so it works fine for that stuff. Um, and it looks pretty basic on, on the website because, on Apple News, excuse me, because it, there's no header image or anything like that. You can specify those things if you want to. But again, those are things that I wouldn't normally do for WordPress publishing. And so, again, you're having to tweak the way that you publish in WordPress to make sure things will show up right and work well on Apple News. Um, the fourth these option, are, sorry, go ahead. Well, these are pretty substantial limitations yeah. as far as the plugins are concerned. I mean, do you think this is a function of of Apple News being problematic as a venue, or do you think it has more to do with the plugin just needing more development time? I think there's both. Um, I, I, you know, I can't speak for the people who developed the plugin. Again, it wasn't Apple. I think they did the best they could, and they are updating it. You know, it's a nice thing about WordPress plugins. They get updated to fix bugs and to increase functionality over time, and no doubt that will continue. Um, but the, another thing that the, the CMS plugin doesn't do is you can have multiple sections on Apple News. So we have the blog and the podcast, and they're two sort of headings that you get at the top, and you pick one of those and get different sets of, of articles. Um, the Apple News plugin for WordPress doesn't give you the option of specifying a section. So it just publishes to the main section every time. And so that's fine for the blog, but if I want to publish from the podcast site, I have no way to say, I want these ones to go into the podcast section. So there's things like that that I'm sure they probably fix over time, but that aren't there right now. So that's another limitation. Um, but I suspect a lot of it is that Apple has created this proprietary format that's mostly designed for major publishers that was mostly designed to work with text and images uh, that doesn't work well with embedded video. And you see this from major publishers too. Like, you know, I've seen quite a few from big news sites where the article says, you know, the, the Instagram picture is embedded below, the video is embedded below. It just isn't there. And you end up having to 
click through to the actual website to see the embeds. And so clearly it's not just small publishers having trouble with this stuff. There are some fundamental limitations to Apple news format and the way it works that these various ways to get content into it are having to work around. Um, you know, I have seen posts that have had embedded videos. There clearly are ways to get around it, and I'm guessing those are mostly uh, companies that have had enough development resource to really work well with the APIs and find ways around these limitations. But there are some fundamental limitations that people are having to work around. Uh, at the same time, you know, as I say, the plugin needs work, and there, there are things that it could do and just doesn't do yet, and that could get better over time. Um, but I think it's a combination of the two. And the fact that Apple isn't building the plugin itself but is letting other people do it is a suggestion that, that they think the community will kind of take care of it rather than really saying, we'd love to get more of these small publishers on here. We're really going to work hard to make sure that publishing from WordPress is as seamless and high quality as it can be. Um, so the last way to publish to Apple News is um, using an RSS feed, which is the way that's been open uh, to anybody who could get approved right from the beginning. Again, the downside with that one is that it's very vanilla. There's no real formatting. There's no styling. You have no control over how it's presented. It just gets presented in a very basic sort of way. So it's, again, fine for text posts. They won't look as good as a lot of other people's posts will on Apple News, but, but it'll be fine. Um, but anyway, those are the four ways. And as I say, each of them has pros and cons. We've been using the Apple News Publisher so far. Um, there are occasions where it works to use the WordPress plugin, but none of them feels ideal. And the biggest single issue is once you've published something to Apple News and you can tell that it doesn't look good, you can't fix it. <laughs> you can't fix it. There's no way to go to the source on Apple News and say, fix this header, change the line height, you know, change the color of this thing. You know. and, and the Apple News publisher is a nice start for, for having an editor for actually editing how it will really look on the site, but it's so basic. Um, that it really isn't a solution for most people. And again, we've been using it because it seems like the best alternative right now, uh, but it's not fantastic. And then you compare this to you know, some of the other companies out there. You've got Medium, um, which is a, a publishing platform, uh, which is WYSIWYG, but it's much more powerful already. And, and I use that for a personal blog that I have, and I really like it a lot. Um, it's also somewhat basic. It's not super, super sophisticated, but it's fine for the vast majority of what you need to do, and it looks good. Um, interestingly, Medium just announced this week that they're going to have these extensions to Facebook's instant articles format and to Google's um, accelerated mobile pages or AMP format, um, but not Apple News. And again, um, and, and I saw a Twitter exchange in which somebody from Medium said, you know, we're thinking about it, kind of. But, um, you know, I suspect, again, it's the fundamental limitations of the Apple News format and the fact that relatively few people are publishing to that compared to those that are now publishing for AMP and Facebook instant articles. That, that's holding it back. Um, and, uh, you know, Facebook's going to be opening up instant articles to everybody at their developer event in the next couple of weeks. AMP is already open to everybody. That's quite hard to work with if you're not a big publisher, so it's not really an option for us. But there are alternatives out there, and this is going to be one of the big challenges for Apple News is um, you've got to work around this stuff, and you've got to, you know, make it really compelling for publishers. So, I mean, that those are a lot of cons, a, a lot of pros as well, but it seems like there are a lot of drawbacks to being a publisher trying to use the Apple News platform. But what other considerations are there for Apple in this? I mean, what should they be thinking about that you haven't already told us? Yeah, and the biggest things that I've heard from some bigger publishers is the analytics fall short of what they really need. Um, and, you know, I get access to analytics through, for our channel as well. And you get to see how many visitors you have, how many views, how many people favorited your channel, how many people shared a piece, how many people liked a piece, 
um, you know, by day and by week and by month and, and um, by the three countries where Apple News is available, so the US, the UK, and Australia. Um, you get to break it down in that way, but you don't get anything like the kind of granular reporting that you get from most CMSs um, or analytics platforms. So if you're used to using Google Analytics, if you're used to even just using the WordPress stats that are part of WordPress websites, um, this falls far short of that. And I think part of that is Apple protecting its user privacy. So as a user, you're grateful for that, but it doesn't tell you which city people are in, doesn't tell you which posts they clicked on, on which days or anything like that. It's really fairly basic. Um, and for a huge publisher, you need a lot more information about who's reading your stuff, where they are, what time of day they read it, you know, lots and lots of other detail that this just doesn't provide for now. And so if you're going to gamble on Apple News and you want to serve up advertising on Apple News, you want to really know who's reading it and when and why and where they're coming from as well. There's nothing on user acquisition right now. And so the analytics really need to be beefed up quite a bit as well. Um, that's another big area that they need to work on. Um, you know, in general, it just feels like um, if you're a small publisher, you're very much a second-class citizen. So A, you probably can't work with the APIs, but B, you'll notice some of the big channels have uh, colors on their channels and then a logo for their channel as well. And, and that's just not in the documentation of, that Apple provides. There's no way to set those things if you're a small publisher. Um, and they seem to be made exclusively available to some of these bigger publications. And so there is a sort of dual tier sort of structure here um, that I think they need to work on if they want to get more small publishers on board. Um, you know, having said all of that, you know, in the first couple of days, we got several hundred views on the posts that were up there at that time. Um, you know, it continues to be a decent amount of traffic. It's, it's smaller than what we get on the website. Um, but there is traffic, you know, people are finding our channel and adding it. And, you know, there's lots of good stuff about it. This is a great way to get to an Apple audience, if that's what you're trying to attract. Um, but you know the analytics, if you're a big publisher especially, the analytics fall short of what you need. The tools for publishing fall short of what you need, whether you're a big or small publisher, uh, especially if you don't have the support that a big publisher is going to get. So there's a lot of work they need to do here. And again, in the context of Facebook's instant articles, Google's AMP project, you know what Medium is doing, there's a lot of competition out there right now. And if you're a publisher, you're going to prioritize resources by the platforms that give you the biggest payoff. And right now, Apple News has the Apple audience, which is really valuable, but almost everything else that's part of publishing the Apple News is inferior to what the competition is doing. So let me ask just one other question. If Apple did fix all of this, do you, what is it about the platform that you think could be competitive and that could be a superior alternative to the competition if, and again, we're assuming Apple were to, to fix all these other problems? Yeah, I think one of the big challenges, so Google, um, the AMP project is an open project. It's a consortium. It's not just Google. Google's kind of led the effort here, but it's open. Um, but, you know, you can't find those articles unless you're searching for something on the web or whatever, you know, or, or maybe linking from Twitter or something like that. There's no kind of home that you can go to for AMP articles. And then on Facebook, at least as of right now, like if a friend happens to share an article that's uh, Facebook instant articles enabled, you'll see it and it'll load super quickly and it's a great experience. But there's no kind of home on Facebook where you can go show me the news, you know. And so Apple News is one of the few products out there that really is kind of curated that brings all the news together and all of it is published, you know, to this, for the most part, to Apple News format. Looks really nice. It's not absolutely cluttered with ads. It doesn't have that nasty chum box at the beginning with all the links to weird, weird tricks to fix your belly fat or whatever, you know. None of that stuff's there. You know, it's a very clean interface. It looks really good. Um, 
it's a pleasant place to spend time, frankly. And so if they can get the curation and everything else right around it so that it, it get, becomes a better experience for end users, and if they can fix some of these publisher tools, it can be a really compelling place if you are a publisher who wants to be read on Apple devices. It's a really nice place to be um, because you're in good company. You, it's a really nice interface. Uh, and people are going to want to spend time there, uh, you know, once the, the content is there and once the curation is better than it is today. So in that sense, I think it's it's a good place for a publisher to be, especially if they want that, that Apple audience. And we, we know that a lot of uh, publishers and their advertisers do want to reach the Apple audience, tends to be more affluent, tends to be willing to spend more money on things um, than your average user. And so, you know, they have a lot going for them, but they need to fix some stuff first. Thanks. That was a fascinating rundown. It'll be interesting to see where Apple News goes in the next six to twelve months. Yeah, I'm I'm really curious to see how much of this, how quickly this stuff moves forward, and and how much of this stuff they can they can fix over the next few months. Um, you know, because I I you know I like that we publish to it, but at the moment it's quite a bit of work. So, um, you know, I'd love it to to be simpler and to be able to just kind of push a button on the WordPress uh, side that would just publish something that would really work the same way as as WordPress does. Well, let's move on to our third topic, which is Tesla's uh, unveiling of its Model 3 car. This is the kind of much lower cost car. It starts at roughly $35,000. Performance is slightly less impressive than the other cars, but still very good. Um, We know uh, the starting price. We don't know any of the options. We don't know what the total price range will be. We don't know exactly what the final design will be, especially inside the car. Um, And we don't know all the sort of features and so on. Um, but we do know that they unveiled it, and even on the day they unveiled it, before they actually showed anybody anything about the car, they had over 100,000 people put down $1,000 to kind of book their place in line to buy one. Uh, and subsequently, you know, about the same number again, and that number continues to grow, uh, did the same thing. So really interesting unveiling. Uh, new direction for Tesla, not one that's a surprise, because this is the amazing thing about Tesla. We've kind of known for almost 10 years now kind of, the eventual strategy and, and getting to this point, but uh, still a fascinating example of, of you know the car world and, and tech world coming together. So Aaron, I'll let you kick off this one. Well, I think that combination is what is so fascinating about this. For example, the pre-order approach that that Tesla took with the Model Three. I mean, this is this is you know a combination, it's, it's a hybrid of sort of what Apple does. Being able to order iPhones, you know, a week or two before launch date, along with uh, a Kickstarter, you know, trying to fund production of something that doesn't actually exist yet. I mean, this is it, this is such a unique way to try to sell cars, and the fact that they had two hundred and seventy-six thousand, I think, is what Musk announced pre-orders. That I mean, that is that is an amazing amount of scale. Uh, now, how many of those orders will hold up? We don't know. I'm sure there are going to be people, you know, pulling their deposits, their down payments or whatever because um, of personal financial reasons. But I'm sure they'll be replaced by others who decide that they want one of these after all. It, it, it is um, It's such a fascinating approach to do pre-orders this way and for the pre-orders to be so explosive. I mean, more than double what Tesla was expecting. And incidentally, would be more than double of the total number of cars Tesla has ever made right. in its entire history. So, you know, the, I guess this is a problem with the pre-order approach. Potential problem for Tesla is that, uh, you know, they're now on the hook for producing a number of cars that they've never come close to in their entire time making cars. Right. Absolutely. No, it's it's one of those things where... Um 
And I've seen so much misreporting of this. You know, Tesla sold $7.5 billion worth of cars in one day. You know, no, they didn't. You know, they right. had a bunch of people put down $1,000 that are refundable. Um, and so, you know, this is very different. You know, so many comparisons to Apple. And obviously, the pre-order process with Apple is very different. You place a pre-order and, you know, usually 10 days or something later, you have the phone. And you know when you're going to get it when you order it because it gives you a specific time frame. Um, you know, many of those people will get it the first day it's available and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, you know exactly what you're getting and exactly what you're paying. And this is, this is you know, a very different kind of pre-order. This is something where many of these people will not get the car for two plus years. Um, you know, and people aren't even going to start getting these things until I think it's late next year. And so um, it's very different in that sense. But, you know, it's, it's a sign of Tesla's power that all these people were willing to put down money before they even showed anything about this, the specifics of the car. Um, and, you know, the unique approach that Tesla's taking here is, is you know, particularly interesting. Um, it was interesting as well. They, they sort of announced preliminary numbers for Q1 as well, much as Samsung did. And their car sales for Q1 were lower than they had been anticipating. And one reason was that they had a shortage of parts um, for a specific model of the car. And, um, you know, that just kind of illustrates they are you know, scaling rapidly already, but are at just a fraction of the scale they'll need to be at for the Model 3, and they're already running into challenges. And so the biggest single question is just how quickly can they ramp production to get to where they need to be to, to build these cars, and can they continue to work around some of these supply constraints and other things like that, um, especially where they're, you know, one of the few buyers or even the only buyer for some of these components, you know. Will their suppliers be able to ramp up quickly enough to meet demand as well? So lots of interesting questions there. I know... Um, one of the things that, that we discussed ahead of time here, and I wanted to come back to this because it was interesting, was this idea of archetypes and how those build up over time and how, how hard it can be sometimes to move on from those. So do you want to explain that a little bit? Sure. Well, an archetype is, in industrial design anyway, is where a product takes shape based on necessity. And then when the necessity goes away, the, the product shape somehow becomes iconic so that it remains even though the shape isn't needed. So a couple classic examples of that is the film camera, for example. Cameras tend to still be, although they've shrunk in size, they tend to be still the same sort of rectangular dimensions of old film cameras that were shaped that way simply because they had to hold a, a roll of 35-millimeter film. Um, another example is the keyboard. I mean, we have the QWERTY layout on the keyboard, on keyboards today simply because when the typewriter was invented, they had to separate the commonly associated letters so that the hammers didn't stick together when you hit the keys close to the same time. Um, but, you know, it's just sort of remained, and now everybody types on a QWERTY keyboard, even though there's no real need for the letters to be arranged that way. Cars have, uh, you know, dozens of archetypes baked in, um, for example, one of the interesting things about Teslas is that the, the hood space, which in, you know, gas cars holds the, the engine and other, you know, necessary components for operating a, a, a fuel combustion engine, you know, Tesla uses that as essentially trunk space. I mean, you open it up and there's storage there. Um, I think... Uh, um, another interesting thing is is the dash. Um, dashboards in the past have had to show you things like oil temperature, right, <laughs> so, right. and oil pressure, so you know if you if your if your engine is getting enough oil. That you know, there's there are a lot of sort of dials that are necessary in in combustion engine vehicles that that you don't need with a Tesla, and so the Tesla 
3 just has that one screen and it's not even in front of the driver it's in between the driver and the passenger and uh, and so they're really interesting archetypes when you switch from from a combustion engine to an electric drivetrain um, that these archetypes may not survive or they may simply because we're creatures of habit yeah, no, I, I, the the front of the car, the grill, was the the thing. You know, this has a sort of a snub nose almost, and um, you know, that's sort of polarizing. Car design's generally polarizing anyway. But I, I wasn't a huge fan of that. But you know, when you don't need a grill, you're familiar with grills. You know, that's <laughs> there should be one on a car in that spot, and there isn't one. It can be kind of jarring. And and so yeah, I'm interested to see both internally and externally kind of how they continue to evolve that and how they sort of strike that balance between you know pushing things forward because they can because they're no longer tied to the way things were done in the past and, and, you know, still keeping a foot in the past. It's interesting. I mean, Tesla, they look great on the outside. One of the criticisms has been they're not fantastic on the inside. They kind of look a little bit cheap and plasticky. Um, and, you know, there was a great article about Fisker this week, I think, on Fortune uh, magazine, um, where they interviewed Mr. Fisker about his, his car company and what he's doing now. But he's a fantastic car designer. And some of the designs for those Fisker cars, which never sold super well, um, were amazing in comparison to the Teslas. And so that's one area where I'm really curious to see how that evolves at, at Tesla. It just doesn't seem to be a major focus for them. The whole center console and the, this massive sort of basically like an iPad Pro stuck to the center console um, just doesn't feel quite right to me. I mean, there's so many things that you do in the car where you don't want to have to look at something and touch a specific touch target. You want to be able to have some tactile feel. I mean, the classic volume knob on the uh, radio in a car, you know, it's very useful because you can reach over without even looking at it, find it, and then twiddle it, you know, and, and get it to just the right spot. And, and the same with turning the radio on and off, same thing with, you know, the, all the stuff that's on the steering wheel uh, to turn volume up and down and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of things that you, you just don't want to have to do with touch. And voice is a solution for a lot of that in cars. And, and, you know, if Tesla does that well enough, that may be okay. But I do worry about the idea of relying too heavily on a, a purely touch interface especially not, you know, to your point, having dials and things in front of the driver. I mean, you want to be able to see the speed just directly below where you're looking out the front windshield because you don't want to be distracted to look at, you know, how fast am I driving? Um, and there's lots of things like that that you are going to want to be more accessible to you. So they have said that things will continue to evolve, so maybe we'll still see some dials and things in there. But, you know, it is interesting to see how they're moving some of this stuff forward. I agree. I, I think there's a danger in everything human interface related being imaginary and stuck behind a glass pane. Right. Um, there's a lot more to being a human being than touching a piece of glass. Right. Well, especially while you're driving and you don't want to be distracted. But right. um, So we're pretty much out of time on this topic. I, I want to briefly mention an article on Quartz today, which was about self-driving trucks. We hear so much about self-driving cars, but there was a great article on, on Quartz, which is qz.com. Um, great news site. They often have interesting takes on news. There was an article about this fleet of self-driving trucks that's just driven across part of Europe. Um, won't dwell on this again, but I, we'll link to the article from the website. Um, but it's fascinating because I continue to have a hunch that we're actually going to see more innovation in self-driving trucks than we are in self-driving cars in the next few years, just in terms of real impact on how the world actually works. Uh, and so we'll link to that, and maybe we'll talk about that some other time. Uh, so we'll wrap up this episode, as we usually do, with our weekly pick. And again, for any reader, listeners not familiar with this concept, this is where we take it in terms to recommend something that we've been doing or enjoying or consuming uh, in our personal lives that we'd like to recommend to our listeners. This isn't product placement. This isn't some form of native advertising. This is just stuff that we like that we think you might like too. And this week, it's Aaron's turn. 
So I'm making a very unconventional pick of the week, which is uh, my recommendation that people look into visiting Utah's national parks. <laughs> Normally we do a product or a service, you know, maybe a website or a movie or book. Um, my family and I, it's our kids' spring break this week, and in between classes I was able to sneak down for a day to Bryce Canyon National Park, which is about three and a half hours south of where we live here. And and I, and we've been to so Utah has five national parks, um, and uh, with my family we've been to three of them so far, and they are absolutely spectacular and amazing. Um, the sorts of geological features and beauty that you just won't find uh, pretty much anywhere else in the world, and uh, you know I think. Uh, Second to the scenery, one of the most striking things you encounter at a national park in Utah is you'll find, you'll hear people speaking Russian or German or French or Chinese or Japanese. Um, you'll hear British accents and Australian accents. People come from all over the globe to visit these national parks. Um, I, I think one of the reasons I feel so comfortable recommending them as a general recommendation is you don't have to be a camper to enjoy them. Pretty much all of the national parks have pretty good tourist ecosystems built around them. There are a lot of nice places to stay. Uh, travel in and out does involve driving, so you might need to rent a car, but driving isn't isn't too bad at all. In fact, the truth is you can <clears throat> each of the national parks are at most about four hours driving from each other. But you see some of the most incredible things that nature has ever created. Um, yesterday we went on a hike um, in Bryce Canyon National Park, which some people call the best three-mile hike in the world. Um, and the reason is because in three miles, you see just such strikingly beautiful scenery. And, and it's a hike that most people can do, um, you know, pretty wide, well-maintained trails. Um, if you do visit any of the national parks I, I, in Utah, I have just one or two recommendations. Um, if at all possible, try to go sort of off the typical tourist season, which would be springtime and fall rather than the summertime. Another benefit of not going in the summertime is that these are desert locations and they'll be pretty hot during the summer. Um, but uh, but I definitely uh, and then the other thing I would recommend is that if you go, you know, give yourself a couple days to explore without feeling any pressure to do things quickly. Um, this isn't going to be like a trip to, uh, you know, say an amusement park where you want to sort of cram in as many rides as you can in the day. Part of what makes this so amazing is that it, these are beautiful places where, you know, even just sitting on a bench can be very spiritually filling and, 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 uh, and rejuvenating. And so make sure that if you go, you give yourself some time to just enjoy the parks for what they are, because you really won't see anything else like them anywhere else in the world. And, and, uh, and so put this on your bucket list um, to visit any of the five uh, national parks in Utah. Great. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah, in case it's not clear to our listeners, both of us live here in Utah. So these parks are within driving distance for both of us. But uh, it's uh, I, I don't know which state has the most national parks in the, in the United States, but Utah must be up there, I guess, with California probably. But uh, anyway, feel free to come and visit sometime and say hello if you do. Uh, that's it for this week's episode thank you for being with us it's a little longer than usual but hopefully it was useful for you uh, and we'll be back again next week so thanks very much bye-bye